Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Better Movement Podcast. This is Todd Hargrove. This podcast is listener-supported, so if you want to show your support, you can become a subscriber at toddhargrove.substack.com. Today's episode features an interview with Nick Winkleman, the author of the excellent book, The Language of Coaching, which gets my highest recommendation uh, as a book that you should read if you want to understand the science and practice of developing movement skill. Nick is currently head of athletic performance and science for the Irish Rugby Football Union, and he was previously director of education and training at Exos, where he worked with some of the best athletes in the world, including college football players getting ready for the NFL Combine. Nick also completed a PhD with a focus on motor skill learning. In this podcast, we talked about deep connections between language and movement, the difference between implicit and explicit knowledge, how to cue someone to run, squat, or jump, differences in culture between sports and dance, and many other topics. I hope you like it. Okay, Nick, thanks for coming on my podcast. I'm happy to have you here. Todd, it's my it's my pleasure. It's been too long, as we said. <laughs> okay, so um, well, tell us a little bit about your background. You're interested in sports. You're a coach. You're a scientist. I, I'm kind of curious. How did these interests develop? Kind of all at the at the same time, or was it one at the time? How did you become the you know the person you are now? Yeah. So, okay, my my initial interest came out of kind of my own journey in high school. So I had a great strength coach who, you know, through call it health and fitness and physical development, showed me that that you can do some pretty incredible things with the human body, you know, for sport in that case. But also I went through kind of a body transformation. So he quite literally helped me drop something like 40 pounds of body fat. So I transformed my body, saw the health benefits as well as the performance benefits. And so that that point in my in my development said to me, okay. This is what I want to do for others. I want to help others achieve their ends, their goals in the same way that this guy helped me. It just happened to be on the canvas, on the backdrop of health and fitness. As I look back, I probably could have found other ways to serve individuals, but I'm very happy it came through kind of the health and human performance. So that brought me into college, studied exercise science, met some great mentors who really, at the time taught me the appreciation of coaching the whole person. I don't think I would have phrased it like that in college, but I noticed the two individuals, one was more therapy-based and one was more personal training-based. In the way they interacted with people, they took careful consideration in their communication, in their connection. You really felt they were coaching the person, not just the program. So I think that was kind of a DNA that I had in this industry very early on. Inevitably, that took me to athletes' performance. And athletes' performance, now Exos, Mark Verstegen, and many other great SNC names alongside physical therapists, that was the high-performance breeding ground for me, where I got to take the strength conditioning craft and apply it at the highest level. And what's really interesting about that space is I came into a world where we suffered for nothing. We had amazing facilities. We had literally some of the best athletes in the world, all professional athletes in their off season. We had all the equipment and the latest, greatest gizmos. 
And the people who I came up under were elite strength conditioning coaches. So their ability, we're talking hundreds of years of experience across all of them. So in terms of program design, periodization, right? They were at the top of the game. And so when I came into this world, and I, and I like to refer to as the knowledge of what to do <laughs> was operating at a really freaking high level. But day in, day out, we were challenged by Mark Verstegen, notably the owner and founder, how can we get better? How can we chase that 1%? And inevitably, I came full circle and I focused back on the person. I recognized, even though we all recognize it, we give it lip service, but I recognized it deeply in my core in an embodied sense that I was focusing so heavily on what to coach, on the program itself. I realized the biggest runway for change and improvement in the program was focusing on the person. And for me, that's what brought me into contact with motor learning and through motor learning, communication, recognizing how often we use words to influence focus to hopefully instigate positive change. And I recognized I have spent no time thinking about this. I've had no academic background. When I asked other coaches, they simply gave it the quip, oh, the art of coaching, you'll figure it out. But for me, that wasn't good enough. And so over the last decade, I've studied the coach as a variable and how what we say matters and how the way we design environments matters in pursuit of what I feel we're here to do. And that is to help the, the client, the athlete, the patient own the change. And fast forward to today, I've been in Ireland for, for five, gosh, five and a half years as now the head of athletic performance and science for Irish rugby, again, in a high performance canvas that allows me to think deeply around communication, connection alongside S&C. And somewhere in there, I wrote a book and got a PhD and uh, consider myself a coach first and foremost. So there it is, Todd, the, the slightly long canned answer to who Nick is. No, that's good. That's interesting. I'm actually surprised that I was kind of interested in when the science and the inquiries into the person came along the journey. I'm kind of surprised it came so late because the, the, the work that you've done in that area is very deep and very wide and very impressive. In your book, A Language of Coaching, everyone should get this book. A lot of my people would have, who listen to this will have heard of it already. Very strong recommendation for it. Uh, on the surface level, it's about, you know, helping athletes learn mo movement skills. But as you said, because it's also about people, the people are learning the skills. You've got this deep inquiry into the connection between language and movement and the connection between perception and action and motor learning and the way we learn facts, which is very deep and very, very well done. Very hard to do. A lot of kind of profound mind body stuff going in there. It reminded me of this quote uh, from Oliver Sacks that I really like, which is much more of the brain is devoted to movement than to language. Language is only a little thing sitting on top of this huge ocean of movement. And what he yes, means is that, you know, the, the movement skills came first evolutionarily. Uh, it came first. And as we develop, it comes first. And it reminds me of this other quote uh, or not, not a quote, but I just learned recently that the word for concept and percept come from uh, the Latin root for grasping something with your hand. So yes. before we can grasp concepts, 
We need to we need to grasp things with our hands, and that kind of depth is coming across all over the place uh, in your book. Uh, what, what was it like taking on this challenging topic and going so deep when you could have kind of stayed on the surface level and just been practical about stuff? Yeah. Oh gosh. Um, well, first of all, thank you. Thank you for the the kind words and the recommendation. For me. <sighs> This book, and I know you've written a couple yourself, Todd, so I'd love your perspective as well. The book kind of wrote itself. If I were to show you (laughs) the table of contents, I don't know if you found this, but the table of contents day one that I submitted to Human Kinetics and the table of contents that's actually now in the book, they look nothing like each other. And so very early on, I laid out what I knew to be the, the core scientific narrative and very much so that was the look and feel and the flow of the book which still I stayed true to but inevitably I I realized that I have to be honest to the audience and the topic I'm trying to share with them and so if my topic is how do we use language to build understanding to build absorption on the side of the recipient I cannot betray that and the way I write this book. I had read the skill acquisition books, the motor learning, the dynamical systems, and I loved them, but I knew so few people could ever access them deeply enough to extract and apply practical reason from it. And so I knew I could not fall prey to that style. At the same time, I felt, call it my own intrigue, but also my PhD, I wanted to be honest to the science. And, you know, I think Einstein is oftentimes given the the, the quote reference here, make it as simple as possible and no simpler. And that was my attempt. And so if you read the book, I try to present the science honestly and simply, but sometimes science, even when presented simply, gives us challenging concepts, especially if we've never come into contact with them but I try to help the reader by using story. And story, as people come to find, is actually one of the richest ways to not only teach cognitive theoretical concepts, but also physical concepts. Because once you start to study the way we use language, as you clearly articulated, Todd, language is built on top of and out of our capacity for action our capacity to move and impart change in ourselves and the world around us. And so while it's implied throughout the book, I even dedicate, you probably saw it in chapter six, a portion of an entire chapter to talk about how language is built out of our movement. And really what we're trying to do with effective coaching language is get that language to go back home, to get it right back to its source point. And therefore, can we use language incorrectly? Yes, but we can also over-medicate and under-medicate. So it's not that language is inherently good or bad, as sometimes those who are familiar with the motor learning community might make it out. It's rather the right words in the right way at the right time in the right quantity so you can connect with others. And that's what I try to portray in many different facets throughout the book. So, so the language, our ability to speak comes kind of, and our ability to understand things comes out of our ability to move and explore the world. So you've got that that connection there, and then you're trying to use the language 
to get to the get back to the movement again. So these things are just like profoundly intertwined. And if you want to understand that again, re- re- read read the book for sure. So an- another thing that that I liked in the book is is right off the bat, you're kind of talking about the similarities between the way we learn facts and how much of the science of how we remember things and how we perceive things and how facts get into long-term memory also helps us explain how we learn motor patterns and how we retain motor patterns and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between uh, learning facts and learning how to do things like movements? So the, the, the first obvious difference is the nature of what we're trying to bring on board in terms of how it's used. And so when we think of facts, we're usually referring to things that we can state. So things that we can physically put back into words. And thus there's a cognitive component, what we might refer to as an explicit component. I need to know what I'm learning and I need to grasp it and understand it in a way that I can verbalize it back to you, right? And that's kind of the the province of facts. However, I can learn many a movement skill and have it never percolate to my explicit knowledge that one, I'm gaining the skill, let alone my explicit ability to communicate it back to you. So take, for example, my son, he was five, learning to ride his bike. As he's learning to ride his bike day in, day out, he can clearly see he can go a lot farther without falling off, even though he's not registering or quantifying that exact change in the same way we might assess someone's knowledge in a written test. However, once he was a full-blown cyclist and he's able to move on his bike anywhere he wants, if I was to ask him, Madden, describe to me the process of learning how to ride your bike or explain to me how you would teach someone else to learn to ride a bike. He would give his best effort in doing that, but he would fall short. And so in that case, movement learning, the learning of what we would refer to as more procedural things that we can physically act out and do is far more implicit. Now, this creates a little bit of a conundrum when we are coaching individuals because by the very nature All of movement, its final resting place, is of an implicit nature. I can do far more than I can tell. It's a beautiful quote around how implicit learning works. I'm able to act it out. I'm able to physically do it. It doesn't mean I can describe it in words, nor is it necessary to. Think about in in, in the history of the human condition, language came much later than movement. So there's nothing unique or necessary about my ability to cognitively articulate something. I don't need that to be able to move. However, in a coaching context, we understand that that implicit learning, the learning by just doing, the learning by dancing with the environment we find ourselves in, whether it's learning how to ride a bike, skip rope, or even walk up a set of stairs, that can only take us so far. And as humanity identified and developed complex skills, like throwing a baseball, we invented sports, we kind of pushed past the the, the survival level of movement skill development that the body naturally says, hey, I implicitly need to be able to achieve. 
And therein lies the need for coaches and the need for coaches to figure out how to intervene, how to engage with this athlete environment, client context relationship. And this is the the health warning. The second you start to introduce explicit information into a process that is very much so embedded and naturally implicit in the way it's organized in the psychomotor system, you run the risk of introducing noise, interference, and in layperson, paralysis by analysis, which reinforces why this topic was so interesting to me as a coach and why I inevitably wrote a book on it because language can be used for good but it can equally be used inadvertently for bad. And we see it again and again in sport around choking under pressure and people underperforming. Yeah, so so the differences between the implicit knowledge and the explicit knowledge, one is is like a, the explicit is like a conscious knowledge of exactly what you're doing. And the implicit is like, I don't even know how to do it. I'm just doing it. And I'm doing it. And, but I'm kind of wondering if there's different, personality uh, types here. Now, no one knows exactly everything they're doing as they perform a complex movement skill, but some people are kind of more conscious than others. Like you're, maybe you're analytical kind of neurotic types like myself. I mean, I could tell you a lot about what I'm doing in my golf swing in all these different places, and I'm not so sure it's helping me. It might be kind of a paralysis by analysis situation <laughs> as opposed to someone who's just feeling it. And I don't know how I do it. I just visualize the shot and I go do it. Um, do you notice that there's different styles and personalities about how much kind of explicit knowledge people can have about their technique and like still be able to do it pretty well? So this is, we could do an entire podcast, multiple podcasts on that question alone, because it's such an interesting one. At the end of the day, I I like to say this, psychology trumps motor learning. And what I mean by that is if I just take the blanket motor learning principles and apply that, but I do not give consideration to use personality, preference, beliefs, desires that we know can absolutely intervene and interfere with best practice motor learning. And that I might say, oh, I'm going to design this perfect environment for you to learn something implicitly. But if you're like, Nick, what's going on here? I don't feel the balls going straight. I don't like this. Why aren't you talking to me? I need to know. I need to know. You're not actually, and here's, and you know, I talk about this in the book. You are not able to point your attention at the right bits of information at the right time to absorb what it is we're trying to help you absorb from a skill perspective. So what this all comes down to is for me, personality differences in many ways comes down to how we like to use our attention. Some people like to deploy their attention, as you said, Todd, just to through a more kinesthetic experience. They're very much so happy. In fact, they, they would like to just do it. Give me a demonstration, maybe a bit of light instruction, and let me have at it. Other people want the Wikipedia page on how to perform the skill before they've even picked up the club, if we're using the golf as a reference. Now, We know with the person that wants a lot of information. For me, here's the key, and I I talk about this in the book. That's fine. Todd, if you know you want a lot of information, I'm going to give you a lot of information, or I'm going to give you the the sense (laughs) that you are getting a lot of information. The key thing, and here it is, but I'm going to protect 
the way I share that information with you from then the way I prepare you to perform the skill. That's the key difference. Many coaches, when they're coaching an individual, will give the person a flood of information of their own accord. You and I both know this. The informed coach that is already aware of attentional limitations, working memory limitations, will want to minimize the amount they say and try to have as much implicitly rich learning going on as possible because that's the true home of physical motor skills. But then they get the client who usually by chance or choice, personality I do not know, have a preference. Maybe they worked with another golf coach that gave them every single detail. Now, it doesn't dawn on them that they left that golf coach because they weren't making the change. And part of the reason might have been because there was too much information, but we'll put that to the side for right now. This person's calibrated to a lot of information. And so what I do is we talk to them. We talk it out. Once we've given them that detail, and this is what I refer to as the knowledge of what to do. Todd, in my experience, it doesn't matter what sport the athlete is in. The person who wants a lot of analytical data, they want data that we could categorically put into the knowledge of what. They want biomechanics. They want specific range of motion. They want muscle action. They want examples. But all of that is descriptive language. It is what we again said earlier. It's declarative it doesn't necessarily help me understand how to do it. And so in those cases, if I can just drop in a quick coaching tip to help diffuse this, I'll say to the person, with all of this knowledge of what to do, what do you think is stopping you from being able to actually do it on the course? Such a powerful question, because that's why they're there at the end of the day. There's no flood of information to date that's made the change for them. So they, they're, they're missing something because categorically, they're just staying in one lane. And there's actually a category of information they need that they have yet to access. And that is the category of the knowledge of what to do, which fundamentally tends to be a different set of linguistic rules or linguistic principles when it comes to teaching movement. So let me give from my world a sprinting example to articulate this or to highlight it. If I'm working with someone on sprinting and I've had many uh, a player preparing for the NFL combine who was analytical, many had track backgrounds, even track moms and dads. And so they wanted the detail. It was as much testing my knowledge as it was their own appetite for it. And so I would say things like, hey, we need your hip, your knee, your ankle to align. Right? We need your arm action to this, your butt. But then I would pause and I would say, to do that, to achieve that, ah, now I insert as the last bit of information, I insert the knowledge of how, push the ground away, gradually rise like a jet taking off. Imagine this, that, or the other. And so it's understanding what different types of language do for the learning process and being able to use the quantity and quality of that information in terms of the person's preferences. So you mentioned uh, the idea of too much information uh, yes. several times and the importance of attention, which, I, which is about uh, focusing on the information that's in your environment, which is actually going to help you solve your, your motor problem. I want to read a, a great quote from, from your book that was about uh, attention. 
You say millions, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit to shorten it up. Millions of items of the outward order are present to my senses, which never properly enter into my experience. Why? Because they have no interest for me. My experience is what I agree to attend to. Only those items which I notice shape my mind without selective interest, experience is utter chaos. We create ourselves by how we invest this energy. Memories, thoughts, and feelings are all shaped by attention. And this is something that's under our control. We can do it with what we please. So attention is the most important tool in the task of improving uh, the quality of experience. Very good. I like it because it's not just about sports, right? <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, but, certainly. But what exactly is attention? Is it the spotlight? Is it a filter? Is it a microphone? So... <laughs> <laughs> You, you, you talk to, and I did, in writing the book, I wanted to make sure I could appease the lay, but I also wanted to appease the, the scientists as best I could. So, you know, people who have, have come across Fitz and Posner, right? Cognitive, associative, autonomous. Well, the half of that Posner who's still alive, he has done some of the, the basic groundwork, looking at the attentional system in our brain, almost treating it like an organ within the mind. And so attention is complex. Is attention the same thing as consciousness? Well, attention seems to be a part of consciousness, but is attention in the way we can descriptively articulate it today and the way it shows up in the brain, is it the same? Likely not, likely not. It's one piece of it. But as far as experience is concerned, Todd, Pragmatically speaking here, as far as experience is concerned, attention is what we use to have that experience. Whatever I point to at any given moment will be the experience that I step into. Right now, as I look at the camera, I see the camera. That is my experience. But if I look down at the screen, I can see Todd in the lower left corner. Now that becomes my experience. Assuming someone is listening to this and enjoying it, they were not thinking about how the clothes felt on their body, assuming they're wearing them. COVID times has changed things for us. You know, if you're wearing a watch, are you noticing it? Well, now you probably are. Are you wearing shoes? If not, how do your feet feel on the ground? So you have all of these sensory signals that are ever present, as I say there in the quote, they're always available, but I only access dance with them when I point my attention at them. And so certainly we can argue that experience, we have a sense of something outside of that attentional window. And I've used all, I use spotlight, even though I get my hand slapped by some of my scientific friends, but for all practical purposes, it is a spotlight. It is fixed in size. It allows a certain amount of information to be entertained and engaged with, and I can change. I can point that spotlight inwardly, we, inwardly and outwardly at whatever I'd like, but it is limited and fixed in size. And so for me, from a coaching perspective, whether it's implicit or explicit, we are negotiating with this person's attention and what they place it on. So you could have your attention, if you're kind of the geeky type that wants all that biomechanical information, you could have your attention on, oh, you know, now my glutes are doing this, or now I'm extending there, Absolutely. kind of on the inside of the body and all of that biomechanic stuff. Or you could have your attention on the person you're trying to catch or the ball you're trying to catch or the finish line or pushing away from the ground. And, and one of those kinds of attention, the external attention has been shown over and over to be 
the proper place to put your attention, right? I think most of my listeners will know that external attention is better than, than internal for motor learning and performance, but can you kind of summarize, maybe quickly kind of summarize what the research has shown? I know there's a lot of it, but uh, t- tell us what you've learned about it. Yeah, I mean, so, so in, in short, as you say, we think of it like a zoom lens on a camera. So I can, I can zoom my attention right into, call it the micro unit of controllable movement, or at least my sense of the micro unit of controllable movement. And so I can think about the action, the tension of a muscle, or the action, the motion of a joint, or a limb, or a body segment. If it resides inside of my skin, we call this an internal focus, because I'm literally focusing internally. And thus, if I'm a coach and I give a cue, you said this earlier, Todd, like squeeze your glutes, I'm offering an internal cue to promote an internal focus. That is then contrasted by allowing my attention to zoom out of my body and onto the environment. Well, why would I place it on the environment? Well, you do when you're walking down the street. Otherwise, you would trip on everything that comes your way. When you're driving a car, where's your attention? Certainly, it's not on your hands or your wrist. It's on the road in front of you. That signals you how to navigate this car in terms of the outcome you try to achieve. So the very fact is if I'm talking, I reach for this coffee cup and I have a sip, I wasn't thinking about the micro units of complex coordination to get there. I said, I'm thirsty, saw the cup, grabbed it. My hand naturally formed to the handle. It would have been a different formation if there wasn't a handle or if the handle was facing away from me, naturally did it and brought it back. So those are just three quick examples to say day-to-day experience. We're not thinking about the joint or the muscle. We're thinking about the outcome or the environment we're in to achieve the outcome. So in a vertical jump, push the ground away to jump high. That's an environmental external cue. Or I'm trying to jump high. I'm using a vertex. Look up. Okay. See that highest tab? Yep. I want you to hit it. Great. Now it's an outcome focused. And so we have this, I call it a continuum of cues, external versus internal. I'm sure knowing your work, your, 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 excuse me there. Knowing your work, your listeners will be familiar with Gabrielle Wolf. So her first paper, 98, right? Fast forward now to 2021. Some, what is that? 23 years later, we have North, North, at least in my own research database of 250 papers that look across novice to expert, simple things like balance and tossing a beanbag to sprinting, change of direction, jumping, Olympic lifting and complex skills like tennis and golf. And again and again and again, we see, by my estimates, easily over 90% agreeance across these studies that when we focus on the right, and notice I'm emphasizing, Todd, the right external cue that will consistently result in not only better performance in the moment compared to an internal, let's say, equivalent but more importantly, it results in a improved trajectory and endpoint of learning, which means if you were to invest, if cues were a stock, you would have a much greater return and consistent return investing in an external cue and thus an external focus compared to the internal equivalent. So why is it that that uh, you mentioned the, the idea of paralysis by analysis earlier, that has something to do 
uh, with why the internal focus of attention might not be working as well as, as the external. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and choking and, and the constrained action hypothesis, if that's what it's called? Yeah, absolutely. So let's take a symphony. Okay. You go to a symphony and let's just look at the anatomy of a symphony. You have a conductor. I'd ask people to reflect how many conductors do you have? You have just one. And then you look at all the different sections. You have the brass, you have the drums, you have the horns, so on and so forth. Now imagine that you are in that symphony and we analogize that symphony to using an internal focus versus an external focus. And you are preparing to hear your, your, your favorite song by Bach or some other famous right individual out there for which my name is getting Mozart, let's say. I'm not as musically inclined on the piano as I'd like, Todd, so forgive me. But whatever the song is that comes to mind, now imagine your first hearing of it, only the drums are playing, or only the flutes are playing, or only the horns are playing. Is that going to give you the same wholeness, the same experience of that song? Absolutely not. To experience that song in its fullness, you need the entire orchestra to coordinate together. But the only way that entire orchestra can coordinate together is in terms of the single source of truth, the conductor. That conductor is analogized here to the external focus. The external focus is the single source of truth that in focusing on it, allows the entire orchestra of joints and muscles to coordinate and play as one. And so if we go back to my sprinting example, when I offer someone up a cue, like focus on pressure off the big toe, or rapidly extend your knee, or I need you to get more chest up as you push out of the blocks, or get your hips forward, that's as if I am asking the trumpets or the drums or the cymbals to be the only thing playing in that moment, still recognizing that there's some knees, ankles, feet, shoulders, trunk, so on and so forth. So we betray quite literally the way coordination shows up from a motor control perspective when we ask the client or athlete to forcibly put their attention only on one micro segment of a greater macro picture. Now, if you're listening, you might say, Nick, I've been given internal cues, rightly or wrongly, for a very long time, and yet the person can still perform the movement. Yes, they perform it in spite of the cue, not because of it. At the end of the day, language is only so powerful. They will still have a desire to run to change direction, which will overpower the cue. But the cue seeks, in my experience, to dampen the learning that is otherwise available to them. When you give them the external cue, you bring in the conductor, you clearly brighten the key information to place their attention on, allowing the whole system to coordinate in terms of it. Just like a conductor, just like putting a single GPS, or excuse me, a single address in a GPS unit. That's your external focus. That's the benefit. 
So we talked about uh, too much information and focusing on the right stuff. This means that information, even if it's true, can be potentially dangerous, right? I mean, you could have an accurate biomechanical understanding of what's happening in the glutes or in the hip as you're sprinting. And if you're the kind of person that feels really kind of in control when they, when they know things, maybe in your pressure situation, you're going to start, your mind's going to kind of go there and that could cause choking, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just because it is true doesn't make it relevant in that moment. If I am dying of thirst and you give me a hamburger, certainly I still need food. But in that moment, it is not relevant to my condition. And so ultimately, we're trying to offer up language that encourages a focus that ultimately allows the whole body to coordinate together. And I just want to say one final thing about this, this internal external piece, both matter taught in my practice. I want people to hear me loud and clear. I used to not say this, but I'm saying it now and it's clear in the book. We need internal language because internal language provides the scaffolding for the external. And then I've given cues like push the ground away before just blanket stone cold. And the person's like, well, what do you mean by that? So if I preface that of, hey, to sprint effectively, I need your hip, your knee, and your ankle to be aligned. That still doesn't tell them how to do it. It gives them knowledge. We can share in that shared understanding. I can show it on a video. Great. But now it's that dot, 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 that pause. To achieve that, I want you to focus on exploding off the ground or pushing the blocks away. So sometimes to understand that external cue, you need some internal language scaffolding. If I can get away without using excessive internal language, certainly. But I also, it's the same for external language. If I can get away with a shorter cue, internal or not, I'm always going to go with the shorter one. Remember, I'm dancing on coals here. I'm playing with fire. I'm trying to use an explicit medium to engage someone in an implicit path. And so I have to be very cognizant that I am informing that path process, not interfering or interrupting. That's ultimately what internal language seeks to do when it is thought about while they move. If they're not moving, we can chat about biomechanics till the cows come home. But when it comes to turn the engine on and get on the road, I am powering that engine with an external focus, or we might get into the use of figurative or analogical analogy-based language. Right, right. So it, I think it's it's in there in your book. Uh, most of the cues that actually do end up getting used in the weight room and by coaches are internal, probably because they're taking advantage of their, you know, their anatomical knowledge and all that kind of stuff. And, they, and they've read science books. I'm wondering if you've ever done a study of more traditional practices, like maybe dance or yoga, where a lot of their Cueing, a lot of their knowledge is coming, you know, less from scientific books and more from kind of traditional practices. Have you looked into the kinds of cues that are used in those areas to get people moving and posturing in a different way? I can't recommend Eric Franklin's book uh, and his work for those. Yeah, exactly, who, exactly what I had in mind. <laughs> I figured, Todd. I figured. No, Eric Franklin. I, in fact, I'd like to spend more time studying his work, but I, I have read. A number of his books and, and certainly have talked to a number of dancers who've, who've read the book and have attended courses in the past. And what I find, and I said this the other day to someone, there's a direct correlation, at least in my experience, there's a direct correlation between the nature of how 
you were codified, how your language for teaching was codified academically, educationally, and how you actually coach other individuals. So at the top of this, you have, let's say, physiotherapists or physical therapists who have a remarkable level of anatomical, biomechanical, and kinesiological language mapped onto the human body, and for good reason. We need to have a way, a, a method of talking about what, W-H-A-T, is going on. Uh, however, those same individuals are not getting communication courses. They're not getting the line drawn in the sand that knowledge of what to do declaratively that I can put into words is not the same as knowledge of how to do it. Procedurally, implicitly being able to act it out. Many a person can describe something they cannot do and therein lies the difference. And so unfortunately, and, and this is not to have a go at my medical friends, they tend to be from a communication perspective, the greatest culprits of overuse of internal language. Second to them, I typically find, is your strength conditioning coach, and your personal trainer, while not on the same level, still has quite a high level of academic or professional upbringing in the biomechanical and kinesiological texts. And again, the line is not drawn in the sand that descriptive biomechanical language is not synonymous with coaching and teaching language. Then you have the sport coach, especially the sport coach who maybe used to be an athlete who didn't have that same formalized academic or educational upbringing. And this would certainly be true of dance. And there tends to be a lot more language that is what we might call everyday language. They're referencing things that we can see, feel, and touch. And so most of their language is analogical. And if you read books by Eric Franklin, he uses a lot of visualization, a lot of analogy, a lot of metaphor. You know, the hips are like a bucket. Don't let the water sway. Now, we, we know there is good evidence, albeit it's not as robust as the internal-external distinction, but still there's a consistent finding that when we use analogy, when we compare bodily movement to some other bodily movement or some other environmental outcome, such as, I need you to gradually rise when you sprint. Pretty complex thing to explain in words. But if I say gradually rising and sprinting is the same tempo and energy of a jet gradually rising, all of a sudden, it becomes a lot easier for you to access that movement by way of comparison. And so we find the lowest use of internal language is the sport coach, and I would put the dancer in that, those that are not trained in the formal disciplines of biomechanics and kinesiology. That's great. Um, let's talk, let's get some examples of, uh, you know, how, how these cues work in, in context that, that you're working with a lot. So you've got, uh, let's say you use this example in the book, you've got a runner that is, uh, to your mind has got like three or four, uh, different flaws in their technique, maybe overstriding too much heel striking and their postures, not the way you'd like it to be. And their hips are not in the position. And so as a coach, you're like, oh, how am I going to fix all of these different problems? But you talk about a strategy where you might be, get huge bang for your buck and fix all of them if you can find out which one is driving the others. So, I mean, within the context of this runner, tell us how that would yeah. work. So, and, and this is where I, I say in the book again and again, I say it in my own work, 
you can't know how to coach until you know what to coach. And so earlier on, we already emphasized it still needs to be the right external cue. And so if you're pointing your language at, to use a, a gray cookism, the symptom versus the problem, you're chasing shadows. And so as a coach, as a medical practitioner, right, as a sport coach, you still need to have a process to actually get to the primary error. If we think of our symphony analogy, where in the symphony is the overall sense breaking down? And can we identify that? And then can we point our external cue at the essence of it? And so in my own work, I just always simply use this 3P model of position, power, and pattern, where I ask the question, first and foremost, do they have the range of motion and stability to even do what I need them to do? And so that's always first port of call. Is there a handbrake somewhere in the body? I love Stu McMillan's quote, you cannot fix a mechanical problem with a technical cue. So the first thing that we have to clear up in our own evaluation process is, do they have adequate mobility and stability to perform the skill? And then the second tier, to the degree that the movement is dependent on relative strength and power, so let's say a vertical jump or sprinting, do they have adequate strength and power expression to perform the movement? In my own work, working with NFL athletes, again and again, we found a lot of technical flaws were due to the fact that they simply could not generate enough force relative to body weight. So once we've handled those bottom two tiers, then we get to the top one. Am I dealing with a pure patterning issue? And so Todd, that's the first question I want everyone to ask themselves. Is it a pure patterning coordination issue? If it is a pure pattern coordination issue, what we are saying is this is subject to change right now. The raw material is in the human body. They have it available. They've gone down to Home Depot. It's on the lot. We just got to figure out how to put it together. And that's where we always have two options, right? We have the verbal cue option or the nonverbal constraint option. And sometimes we use both. And so in my own work, when I try to identify where the problem is, and I know you do a lot of this yourself, Todd, as well, I always work inside out. And we use the, the metaphor, the analogy, you can't shoot a cannon from a canoe, right? If you have a, a cannon in a canoe and you shoot it, the canoe goes back and the ball stays right where it is. So we need stability from the center outward. And so in the sprinting example, we would always look first and foremost, is it a postural issue? No, posture seems to be fine. Fine. Is it a, a lower limb issue? Okay. If so, is it stemming from front side or backside? In my own experience, front side issues tend to always be an echo of backside issues in that I'm not getting my leg forward fast enough, which then precede the actual casting, heel strike, so on and so forth. So assuming I've cleared position, assuming I've cleared power, posture is fine, a high backside mechanic, that then becomes my focus. What's the focus? How do they get their leg up and forward quicker? And so nine out of 10 of my players, when we would work with them preparing for the NFL combine in the 40-yard dash, it would be how do we accelerate that thigh to the sky or that thigh forward if it's acceleration? And so that's kind of the process we would go through. But here's the beauty, Todd. If you've cleared the physical barriers, you know there is no mechanical, there's no mechanical issues slowing down the progress. 
and you're utilizing an external cue and it's targeted and it's not working despite your best effort, that then in itself becomes an evaluation process that you can then start to play around with pointing those external cues at different parts of the technique until you find what works. It still is a, a process of trial and error at the end of the day. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, just because you're going to use a simple external cue and let all the magic happen from there focusing in the right place, it doesn't mean that you as the coach don't have to have extremely sophisticated biomechanical knowledge of the exact skill that you're coaching and that you're thinking in those terms, but then you're going to translate that into, into something uh, actionable. I think you've got the quote in the book that uh, these cues kind of hide all of this information. They, they yes, kind they of do. embody it, but they, but they hide it from the athlete's consciousness. Yeah. I, I call the external cue is, is the Trojan horse of coaching <laughs> communication, right? Simple, understandable, a lot of detail behind it. So they, they embody the information. You're not giving it to them explicitly, but you're getting them that information. And that's part of why analogies and metaphors work, right? Because those contain within them a tremendous amount of information and it links up to information the person already understands on a gut level. A hundred percent. So if you think of my son, he was learning to ride his bike. After a few weeks, he got to a point where he stagnated. And so every time he tried to speed up, he would overcorrect and he'd fall off. And so this is that whole idea, right? A bike is, 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 is a, something we've manufactured and created as humans. He can only take it so far. So then dad, the coach, had to intervene. Now, I asked for permission on his end. I said, do you want me to help you? Because earlier on in the process, he said, no, I'm fine. But now he was saying yes. And what I noticed, Todd, is he was overturning his handlebars. He wasn't keeping them straight ahead as he was speeding up. And so what we're doing here is I identified the priority, the problem. And another way to phrase that is that's the source of information. If he can access the information on what the handlebars are doing implicitly, he'll be able to make the change. It's like taking your sense of rather earlier on, we said, of listening to us, but thinking about your watch or your feet. We're just going to help him point his sensory system at a different part of the environment. And so I used a, a musical example with my son. I said, okay, should your handlebars, right, back up. Madden, show me what your handlebars are doing when they're loud. And he grabbed onto him, he turns them all around. He said, beautiful. Show me what your handlebars are doing when they're quiet. And I even brought my voice down and held him very still. And then I asked him, when you speed up to catch your sister, that was the pain point, his sister was beating him. Should they be loud or quiet? He said, quiet. And so from that day on, no problems at all. And I could even hear himself saying, quiet, as he would speed up. And within a few days, he was riding his bike. We broke through the barrier. All I did there is I used, you could call it an analogy. I analogized his control of the handlebars to loudness at a musical scale, something he could relate to. And so the beauty of external language, here it is, it's honest to the environment. It is always bringing their attention back into the environment, back into the relationship with the environment. Because at the end of the day, movement is the space between client and context, perceiver and perceived. There is nothing necessary about a coach to learn any physical skill. 
However, we know that there are caps, there's limitations to what someone can learn if they're not paying attention to the right things. That's why you can have some people that are really elite and others that are not. Part of it's genetics, but part of it is how we place our attention in a learning context. The arbiter of that learning then is a coach. And so my job is to respect the relationship. It's a sacred relationship and learn how to get in there to influence without interrupting or interfering. And that's where analogy and external cueing improves, bonds the relationship. Internal cueing asks the client to retreat from the context, asks the perceiver to retreat from the perceived. And that's where the whole thing breaks down. So I want to go through, uh, I know I don't have you for too much longer, but I want to go through just some common movements that, that people are doing in the gym and, 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 and in, in the context of exercising. You just give me an example of some of your go-to most common external cues, including an analogy that you might give to, to, to improve the, the movement. Well, let's just start with, a, with kind of like a, a postural issue like run, for running. How do you cue it, uh, a good posture while running? What are some of the phrases? So number one, what does posture to try to do? We're, we're trying to make them vertical. And so the big thing is we want them to fill space. What are the two places I'm trying to fill space? I'm trying to get away from the ground and I'm trying to get towards the sky. So some of the simple ones is we might say tall, but tall to what? Get tall towards the sky. I'm wearing a hat right now. Imagine you're wearing a hat. I want to take the little button on the top. Imagine someone is pulling it up towards the sky. If we want to decrease tension in the body, we want to get them to decouple the focus. So I say, I want you to imagine, like Pinocchio, there is a puppeteer right above you. As you are running, they are pulling those strings higher, tighter, tighter, and tighter. Now, that's what I call a live analogy because you could be running. I've given you the puppeteer analogy, and I could say higher, 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 and you have the active sense of something above you physically pulling you. Now, other cues that I don't like as much, but people can use is they'll make comparisons. Tall as a tree, imagine your body as a pole, get nice and tall, straight as a pencil. But the problem with those, Todd, is I tend to find that they get people to tense up, to stay inside of themselves, even though they're analogies. I want you to think about allowing almost like effervescence, almost like as you, when you have a, a soda or a sparkling drink, that energy is just floating towards the sky and giving visuals that make that really palpable or palatable and easy to do. So that's a handful right there. But by the way, uh, all of those cues appear in the in the dance community and the yoga community, the ones we talked about and, and Eric Franklin, those, those types of things. Yep, absolutely. Dynamic Alignment Through Imagery is one of his good books, by the way. Uh, and so I noticed that in doing a lot of I, I kind of gone going through the, the the different exercises you have in the book, squats and and uh, different pushes and pulls. And you very often have that kind of postural cue of staying long during the these yeah. exercises. What about a, uh, a vertical jump? Well, how would you cue that? So, again, it depends on what we're trying to achieve here. If it's purely about power will usually start with outcome-oriented. And so a, a quick little background is when you're trying to produce more power, whether it's vertical jump, horizontal jump, or even like a medicine ball throw, I talk about this concept of a close external cue or a far external cue. And so we always want to start with far external cues if we're trying to promote power. And so that's meaning we're trying to touch the ceiling, we're trying to grab the penthouse, we're trying to grab the clouds, 
We're trying to grab the tabs. It's a vertex, whatever is above them and seems somewhat achievable. That's what they're focusing on. A quick little anecdote on that. We would take NFL combine guys and we would have them initially do a set of vertical jumps at their normal height. Then I'd put the vertex much higher, higher than they can achieve and have them focus on that not getting any tabs is all, but focusing on something farther away. Then we bring it back down to normal height and we'd see one to two inch improvement because we had calibrated their attention to trying to achieve something farther away. If we find that that's not working because they're not producing the power we want, then we bring the energy back down to a close external focus. And so that's push the ground away, explode off the ground, drive away from the ground. And what you'll find is a lot of those cues to the lay listener, Nick, they're all the same. But I guarantee if I gave them to you one at a time, Todd, you might prefer drive off the ground. Another person explode off the ground. Now we don't have the time today to go into it, but that's the main one of the main models in the book is how do we selectively tune our action words? How do we selectively tune the focus close versus far to get the most for the individual? And so those are some examples that we can use and the reason behind them. Give, give me one more. To, to coach me through a, a squat. Very simple cues for, for a good squat. So when we look at a squat, again, what's the issue? For many individuals, it's both depth and the way they achieve that depth. And so if we had no physical constraint to use, the first thing that we talk about is, hey, I want you to imagine that you have a stool behind you. I want you to think about bringing your hips down and tapping that stool. Now think of a small stool. It doesn't tend to be that height of a chair. We know it's going to tend to be a little bit lower. And so now I might say, hey, I'm going to bring that stool a little bit back. So I want you to reach back and down towards that stool. Let's say the issues are with the knees. Normally, we might use a mini band to fix up the knees. But in this case, I might say, your knees are like headlights. Keep those headlights straight ahead. Or I might say your knees have lasers coming out of your kneecaps. I want you to keep those lasers square on the mirror in front of you. Let's say it's a postural issue. Whatever is on their shirt or think of their favorite alma mater, something sport and relevant. This is the key, relevant to them. And talk about pride. I want you to be proud of this. Show the fans, show your friends, show the mirror, your Michigan State, your Oregon State, whatever it might be. And so in that case, we have kind of a posture, we have a knee alignment, we have a hip alignment. And in all those cases, if I could, I would use a physical bench behind them or possibly a physical mini band. And the cue would just be to accent it. Awesome. I, I, I appreciate your time. It, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you're up to now. What's next? Where people can find you? Yeah. So in terms of, of where to find me, languageofcoaching.com, info at thelanguageofcoaching.com. If people have questions, it's at Nick Winkleman. The Language of Coaching is on Amazon and, and all those good places you get your books. So that's all fine. In terms of what's next, I'm not done with this, Todd. Uh, we're in the works on putting together a, a certification. The word is thrown around a lot. I'm taking my time with this, but I'm going to bring in some other collaborators. We want to build something. I, I like to analogize it to, to the precision nutrition 
of coaching communication, something that everyone in the movement space can dependably go on to, to support their academic and professional development, giving them both not only movement communication, which is what we've talked about, Todd, but also the interpersonal communication side of things that need to connect to bring that together for relationship building. And I'm in the works with Human Kinetics to to look at uh, a few more books down the chain, making this a bit more specific to sport and, and the like. Well, congrats. Thanks for coming on and uh, best of luck. I'm sure uh, we'll be looking forward to see what you do next. Todd, thank you so much. And for everything you do, my man. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks everyone for listening to the Better Movement podcast. If you enjoyed it, please like and subscribe. And if you want to support the podcast, go to toddhargrove.substack.com and become a subscriber.